Please join me for a word of prayer. Oh God, take my words and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our will. Set them on fire for love of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. We'll be in the prophet Isaiah. It may be helpful if you bring your Bibles. In uh, Convergence, Convergence, we have uh, pew Bibles. I don't think there are any pew Bibles here. There are no pews, so uh, no pew Bibles. But uh, it'd be helpful for you to bring a, a Bible because we'll spend most of our time in Isaiah. But we'll be moving around just a little bit. Quick antidote. Anecdote before I uh, jump into the heart of the material, Jennifer and I spent three years, my wife and I spent three years in Pittsburgh. Uh, I was in seminary and we loved it, surprisingly so. We didn't come with high expectations, but we really enjoyed living in Pittsburgh. Uh, the one thing I didn't enjoy was the weather. As a Florida boy, I kind of expect Christmas or summer to start in April. And in Pittsburgh in April, you're still a long, long way away from summer. I think Pittsburgh has the unfortunate distinction of being, I think, the second most overcast city in the world, or in the, in the nation. Second only behind Seattle. You may have to fact check me on that, but there are a lot of gray days in Pittsburgh. And uh, one of my seminary classmates had this very cute little brown head, uh, brunette, curly uh, haired daughter, four or five years old. And on more than one occasion, I'd see this uh, tall seminary classmate walking through the halls with her uh, little daughter in hand, and the little girl would say, it's a great day in Pittsburgh, but don't worry, it'll get better. This was made even cuter by the fact that this little girl could not say, she had that impediment where she couldn't get her R's out, so it didn't come out gray day, it came out gray day. Don't worry, Daddy, it'll get better. It's a gray day in Pittsburgh, but don't worry, it will get better. It's become a little bit of a rallying cry in my family whenever Jennifer or I are encountering just the the disappointments or discouragement of life or, you know, when life serves up some lemons, uh, we'll often turn to one another and say, it's a great day, but don't worry, it'll get better. And I think if you had to look at the prophet Isaiah, this chapter that we're reading, a good summary statement is, it's a great day when Isaiah was writing, but don't worry, it'll get better. I think it'll be helpful to understand just a little bit of the gray day uh, in which Isaiah was writing this chapter, chapter 11. It was a gray day. There was political unrest, unreliable leadership. Uh, the leader, there was transition in leadership. So in Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet says, in the year the king died, the king Uzziah died. So there's transition in leadership. And the leadership that was there and will be there is, is not particularly reliable. And then, as now, as the leader goes, so go the people. And the unreliable, unfaithful leaders led to insecurity. And the nation of Israel, the people of God, faced a great amount of insecurity, economic insecurity, military insecurity. And before Isaiah died, uh, that insecurity, the threat of insecurity become a reality. And the nation of Israel would just be wiped off the face of the map by uh, an invading army. But that storm cloud is not broke yet when Isaiah writes this chapter. It's just on the horizon. It's a gray day. So that's when Isaiah writes. But he writes about a gray day that will one day 
get better. This passage looks beyond the current grade day and the current unfaithful leadership, unreliable leadership, and it holds out the promise of a faithful leader, a godly leader. I think we could even say a savior. And this godly leader, this faithful uh, leader, the savior will bring in a better day. A day that's not marked by insecurity and uncertainty, but a day that's marked by safety. A lion lying down with the lamb and those things that are most fearful will be uh, just behind us. This passage was written during a gray day. But it was written with the promise that it will get better. We'll look at this passage under the following headings. We're going to look at the promise that was made to Isaiah. And we're going to look at the promise that was kept. We back up. We're going to look at the promise that God made through the prophet Isaiah. And then we're going to look at how God kept his promise in the birth of Christ. Many of these passages that we have in Isaiah, these are passages we read during the Christmas season, during Advent, because as Christians we believe what Isaiah anticipated occurred with the birth of Christ. So we'll look at the promise made, the promise kept, and then we're going to draw three very basic but very important implications that may be especially applicable to anybody who is going through a gray day. So, first, promises made. Let's look at the Savior, the leader that Isaiah anticipates. Now, this is a, a very dense passage. And I'm only going to highlight four characteristics of this future leader. Those things that I think are most important. There are more here. Uh, but the first thing we note is his ancestry. He is described as being from the house of Jesse. Who is Jesse? Good question. Jesse is a father of David. So he is going to come from the stump of Jesse, from a noble but neglected family line. Now, interestingly, you've probably heard that theme before, right? The hero that comes from a noble family tree that's fallen into disrepair or disregard, noble but neglected. Think of a Luke Skywalker growing up on Tatooine from a, uh, a noble or neglected, noble but neglected family. Or for one of, one of my favorite books, uh, Lord of the Rings, the hero of that story is uh, a character named Aragorn who is described as being gold that does not glitter, one who uh, wanders uh, but is not lost uh, from an old root that is not withered, from deep roots not touched by frost. Almost the exactly same idea from an old, uh, noble, but neglected family tree. There's going to come a new shoot, a new expression, a new descendant. Now, C.S. Lewis was a, st a student and a scholar of ancient myths and ancient folktales, and he noticed there's a surprising amount of consistency between the stories that we tell ourselves. We tell ourselves this story of the noble, uh, neglected family line. We tell ourselves stories of death and resurrection and self-sacrifice. And Lewis concluded that we tell ourselves these stories not because we all just happen to like the same fantasy stories. We tell ourselves these stories because they relate to the one true story. And as Lewis became a follower of Christ, he became convinced that Christianity was the true myth. The one story that every good story related to. And so here we have the first attribute of this coming Savior, his ancestry from a noble but neglected family line. Secondly, we note his spiritual capacity. He is filled with the Spirit of God. 
Look at it in verse 2 and just note how many times we find this phrase, the Spirit of the Lord rests upon this person. Now in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God rests on various people. And when that happens, it usually implies that God is enabling this person to do something that is outside of their normal capacity for a specific time and for a specific task. So think of uh, the character Samson. Children, remember Samson. Raise your hand if you know Samson. Samson, yes? Thank you, adults and children as well. Samson, he's one of those characters, the Spirit of God comes upon him, and he's given superhuman strength, right? And so God's Spirit rests on him, and he's able to do something that's beyond his capacity for a limited time and for a limited task. But just note how comprehensively God's Spirit rests on this person. It's not just his power, it's not just his might, but his wisdom, his counsel, his fear of the Lord, his knowledge. He will, the Spirit of God will rest upon him, not for one specific attribute, but universally and perpetually. There'll be no start, no end to God's Spirit resting upon him. So we note, secondly, his spiritual capacity. His ancient ancestry, his spiritual capacity, and that leads to what he will do. This is in verses 3 and 4. So we've thought about who he is. Next we'll think about what he will do, this anticipated Savior, this promise made. Uh, verse 3 and 4. He will judge not by what his eyes see or decide by what disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He will judge the poor. Now we hear judgment as a negative. Don't judge me, we may say. This is as a positive. He will vindicate. He will stand on behalf of. He will stand in solidarity with the poor. And this is emphasized by uh, the, the following statement. He will decide that he shall uh, decide with equity for the meek of the earth. So not just the, the, the physically impoverished, but the spiritually impoverished as well. The meek. The humble. And who are the meek and the humble? They're, the, they're the, not the physically poor, maybe the physically poor, but not necessarily. They're, they're simply those who know they don't have much to offer God. No, those who know that they're a sinner. Those who know that they're in need of God. So he will decide with equity for the meek of the earth. This person will vindicate the impoverished. Finally, we're told the results of his work. And the language here is just almost apocalyptic, too good to be true. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. The nursing child will play over the hole of the cobra. It's a picture of unimagined safety, unimagined security, in contrast to the current insecurity that the people of God are experiencing. So in sum... This passage tells us two things about the character of the leader, the future Savior. A spirit-filled descendant from the great King David. This passage tells us two things about what this future Savior will do. He will stand with the poor, the physically poor, the spiritually poor. And he will keep God's people safe. Descended from David. Filled with the Spirit, committed to the poor, the defender of his own. That is a Savior that Isaiah anticipates. And Isaiah writes in the year 700 B.C. 
from promises made, we move to our second point, promises kept. Because as followers of Christ, we believe that these promises made here were kept. When God sent his son, remember the first characteristic of this future leader? A descendant of David. If you have your Bible, I'd like you to flip to Matthew. Matthew's gospel. Matthew is the first writer, first gospel writer. So we move forward about 700 years from the Isaiah writing to Isaiah. And I, or from Isaiah writing to Matthew. And Matthew begins with all things a genealogy, a family tree. So chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy, the family tree of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Matthew divides his genealogy into three. I'm not going to spend much time on this, but I want you to get a certain point. The genealogy is divided into three. First, from Abraham to King David. And if you were to look at this, if you had your Bible in front of you, you would follow along with some of these names and you'd say, oh yeah, I know those guys. I know some of them. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, those are names that you recognize. Maybe not all of them, but most of them. You think, yep, they have a place in the Bible, and at least I, I recognize those names. The second third of the genealogy moves from David to the time when God's people were deported. And they go to Babylon. And you look at that list and you say, hmm, I don't know quite as many of these names as the first names, but I know some of them. David. I know Solomon. I know a few others. And and a few of these show up in the Bible. And you think, yeah, there is some significance to these characters. Then you move from after the people of God were deported, they began to trickle back into Jerusalem. And the list of kings continues. And if you were to look at that name, unless you are a, a Bible scholar whiz, you would not recognize a single one. Names like Ilyakim, Zadim, Iliud, historically insignificant, biblically insignificant. And I bring this up not to go through a short history lesson, but simply to illustrate that the family line of David's tree was just a burned out stump. A bunch of nobodies. And then, at the end of this increasingly obscure family tree, we read in verse 16, Jacob, the father of Joseph, who was the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ a tender shoot from the stump of Jesse. But notice that Matthew does not say that Joseph was the father of Jesus. Joseph only says that Joseph was the husband of Mary. I wonder why that is. Well, let's read on. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child. Joseph regarded to Uh, decided to divorce his wife and do so quietly. But an angel appeared to to Joseph. And that angel said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, 
For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. And you will call his name Jesus. Joseph wakes from the dream and does what the angel commands. He names the child. And in those cultures, in that culture, naming a child was the equivalent of adopting, taking the child as his own. This child filled with the Spirit of God. From the moment of conception to his moment of death, adopted into the family line of the great King David. The Spirit of God would rest upon this future Savior comprehensively and perpetually. This future leader would be a descendant from David. The promises made by God through Isaiah were kept by God in the birth of Christ. Let's move on. Next, the promise made by God through Isaiah, what the Savior would do. He would be committed to the poor and to the meek. He would be a defender of his own. Jesus was committed to the poor from his very first breath. He was born poor. Born to a carpenter's family. First bed, a manger. First followers were fishermen. His most reliable followers were people of questionable character, sinners and tax collectors. His only possession he had at the end of his life was clothes. By most accounts, he had no home. He didn't even have his own tomb. He was poor. His life was one long pursuit of humility and poverty. And especially in his death, he stands with the poor. He stands with sinners and stands in their place, dying for us the sins he did not deserve. Solidarity with the poor and the humble, further defender of his own. Christ, who died for the humble and the poor, rose from the grave. And the apostle Paul describes death and grave as the great enemy, the great serpent that has been now defanged. Famously, the apostle Paul would say, death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Remember Isaiah's prophet, prophecy, the young child will play at the adder's den as if there's no, no venom left. And that's exactly what the apostle Paul says. The greatest enemy, the enemy of the grave, that word that gets the final word, has been defanged. The promise is made by God through Isaiah, committed to the poor and the humble, defender of his own. These are promises kept by God through Jesus Christ, who died for poor sinners and rose again to life, taking away the poisonous sting of death. Promises made, promises kept. And now I simply want to draw three implications. Three implications that may be especially applicable if you are going through a great day. Implication number one, God can be trusted. It's easy for us to reduce some of the promises that we find in the Bible to sentimentality and the stuff of Hallmark cards. Uh, my daily devotional is uh, to read through the Psalms and 
Many of the promises are made through the Psalms, promises like God bottles up the tears, um, that his eyes on the sparrow and his eyes on you and me. And we may think, yeah, right. They may sound like simply sim- sentimental mush and things that you put on the back of a Hallmark card. It's not. God keeps his promises. You can trust his word. Implication number two. He takes his time. Seven hundred years between Isaiah's prophecy and the fulfillment. Now that may be on the long edge of things, but in my experience, God is in no hurry to do the things that I think he should do. Being a Christian takes patience. It takes patience with God, patience with yourself, patience with those around you. And that is hard because most of us by disposition are not very patient people. But God takes his time in fulfilling his promises. Implication number three. God takes his time keeping his word, but he is worth waiting for. These are great promises that Isaiah made, but these promises are even greater in their fulfillment. I mean, who would have ever imagined that the coming Savior would vindicate the poor by becoming poor? Who would have ever ever thought that the enemy inside the wolf that's been declawed, the serpent that's been defanged, would be that great enemy, death? Who would have ever imagined that the spirit-filled descendant of David would come to this unlikely union of Joseph and Mary and her miraculous conception? These are great promises made by God through Isaiah. But a greater fulfillment of these great promises when Jesus came to us. So friends, we all have great days, insecure moments in the present, uncertainty about the future. Let this pattern of promises made by God through Isaiah, kept by God in the birth of Christ, teach us three important implications. Number one, God keeps his promises. You can trust him. God takes his time. Have patience. Number three, he's worth waiting for. And that is enough. Let's take a moment of silence, and then I'll close us with a line from Psalm 27. Just a moment of silence as we consider these things. The psalmist says in Psalm 27, O tarry and await the Lord's pleasure. Be strong, he shall comfort your heart. Wait patiently for the Lord.